Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 350 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Hacking Lyme Disease, an interview with Dr. Marty Ross. My name is Jenny Batacchio. And I'm Matt Zabatello, and Jenny's my co-host today with the brilliant Dr. Marty Ross. We couldn't have had a better co-host for this interview. We have Jenny with her medical background and years of experience in the Lyme community who challenges Dr. Ross on a lot of advanced topics specifically topics that are going to help you get better from chronic Lyme disease. So Jenny, without further ado, here is the brilliant Dr. Marty Ross. Hey, Dr. Marty Ross, and welcome to our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing what you have in store for me here. Well, Dr. Ross, before we get into it, I just have to note that Jenny Butaccio, one of our favorite people in the community, is here to co-host this interview with me. And we didn't know before we asked her to do this interview with us, but she was touched by your work as a Lyme litter doctor many, many, many years ago. And Jane, I'd love for you to share that story with our listeners before we get into the podcast. Yeah, that, I'm, I'd be happy to do so. Yeah, Dr. Ross, you didn't know that we have a connection that dates back about 11, 12 years. <laughs> so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, when I was first uh, sick, um, about 2012, and I didn't know there, you know, there were not a lot of resources at that time. There were not a lot of people um, disseminating information online. You know, you could find a few stories on YouTube if you were lucky and maybe a few people online, but it was not the world it was today. Um, but in my searching, you were one of the very first people that I had found. And I had um, I had started a treatment, but at that time I was very ill. I was bedridden. I couldn't barely sit up for more than five minutes at a time. And I was trying, um, I think a round of antibiotics. I don't remember what it was um, specifically, but I, I was feeling worse and worse and worse on it. And I kept thinking um, just because of who I am and my, my background, and I was a gymnast as an athlete and that I had to keep pushing, you know, pushing myself through this treatment that was just making me feel worse and worse um, by the day. And I, I found you and I, I attended one of your weeknight webinars and I just was like, I'm going to type a question in, you know, and just see, maybe he'll answer it. <laughs> and you did, you answered it. And the question I asked was, is there ever a, a time to stop treatment for a, a little bit? And you said yes. And you gave a list of reasons why. And, um, you know, some of them were that it could be a Herxheimer reaction or that it could even have been an allergic reaction. And so you you listed a few of those reasons. And I thought after months of just trying to push through a treatment that was making me feel miserable, that was the nugget of information I needed to just go okay, I have permission to take a break for a little bit of time. I had not heard that anywhere. I wasn't finding that anywhere else. And around that time, there was still um, a lot of conversation around the harder you herx, the more effective your treatment is, which we now come, we've come to know that that's not exactly how it, it is, right? But that was really still the the crux of what a lot of physicians believe the harder you herx the better the treatment well man that was not working for me right, and right. your wise words helped me be able to just feel free to back off so mm. 
I'm appreciative of it, of it. And yeah, that's, that was like 2012, I think. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, in putting my work out, my goal is to reach and help people. And so I love when I hear stories like this of the impact, because, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting and answering questions that people um, put out in my webinars. And I, I never hear all the impact, but I get stories periodically. And so I, I love to know that the work helps people. So thank you for sharing that too. My pleasure. It was certainly a huge help for me. But enough about me. We want to know about you. Tell us um, a little bit about where you grew up. And if you can, give us a, um, a some background about how you went into medical school and how you started treating Lyme patients. Great, great. So I, mean, I could go on forever. <laughs> I can give you the long story. I'll try to give you a snapshot. So I grew up in Northern Indiana, um, actually in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, my relatives are all from Chicago where I understand you are. So spent a lot of time up in Chicago too. But so I uh, grew up, there's five kids in my family. I'm an identical twin and um, which is, it has its own stories <laughs> as well too. But I, um, I had a love of mathematics. And, and so when I was in um, high school, uh, getting ready to look at what, what should I do career-wise, I wound up deciding uh, to, to pursue that. And my uh, father, who had been an electrical engineer, talked me out of going into engineering. And so I was left with, well, what do I do now? And uh, I decided of all things, I decided to go into actuarial sciences, which is insurance statistics, insurance mathematicians, right? And uh, so I did my first year of undergrad up at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, go blue. And um, and that because they have a, an actuarial program and then came back to Fort Wayne and, and interned a couple summers in a row uh, for an insurance company back there called Lincoln National Life Insurance and decided I hated it. I just absolutely hated it. I mean, I love math, but I hated <laughs> doing this. And so it started me on a quest of thinking, well, what am I going to do? And um, I had after my first year of college, I had to transfer to Purdue University because of uh, financial aid issues. And uh, while I was there and I was just looking at what to do, I started thinking, well, what do I enjoy? And one of the things I had done growing up, I was a long distance runner. I ran cross country, I ran the two mile, and I spent about a third of my running career injured. <laughs> and so I, I had a love of anatomy and physiology, trying to figure out why did I keep getting injured, which drew me to start thinking about, I'm a people person. I love the body. Let's go into medicine. That, that, so that kind of led me to that basically. And so my first uh, thing I was going to go into was actually sports medicine. And so I wound up getting into Indiana university school of medicine. And I started working besides the orthopedist and, uh, I thought, this is just, this is not me. It's like glorified carpentry, the way they do their surgeries and everything. And I thought, no, this isn't going to be it either. But I, I started falling into family medicine. That was what wound up really, um, I loved because family medicine covers the whole range of things that can happen with a person. And you're the first person that sometimes people will see for a problem. And so it takes a lot of complex figuring out to help a person understand what this issue is. Step forward, I eventually wound up um, getting my family medicine residency out in Washington, DC. 
Um, I went out to a program out there that uh, was an inner city urban underserved program. Uh, it's Georgetown's program, but it located at a, another uh, hospital in the city. And I was very mission driven. I wanted to help low income underserved people. But in that program out there, because it's in Washington, D.C., a lot of uh, the attendings we would have and physicians that would come in and teach us happened to be people that had part-time jobs in the government, for instance. And one of the guys that came to teach us was a guy named Jim Gordon. Uh, Jim is one of the founders of integrative and alternative medicine. And he uh, he's a psychiatrist that in his practice did not use any medications at all. Everybody got counseling, diet, nutrition, um, acupuncture, and it was just the stuff he was describing as I'm in residency learning how to use drugs was just mind bending and inspiring. So my last year of residency, I went and did a two month rotation with him out of his office and it just, it changed my life forever. Um, so that's what opened me up to the idea of looking at, in addition to using drugs, the idea of using herbal medicines and natural medicines and realizing that the whole tool chest you can work with is huge. It's not all about drug medicine, basically. And that, that started there. Um, when I got done with residency, um, I actually wound up doing a health policy fellowship. And then I worked in the United States Senate for three years writing healthcare law. <laughs> so, and I worked for, um, although I, I tend to be, I don't want to get too political here, but I'm a knee-jerk liberal. Um, I have no problem saying that. But I worked for the Republicans. I worked for uh, Republican uh, Senator Nancy Kassenbaum, uh, who is from Kansas, that sat opposite Ted Kennedy on uh, one of the committees that wrote healthcare law called the uh, Committee on Labor and Human Resources. And I did that for three years. And when I was done, it was I decided I needed to get back into medicine again. And where I went to was Seattle. And how I got out to Seattle is I wanted to work with low income again, and I wanted to take some of that policy background I had, but learn how to be an administrator too. And there was a, a clinic system out in Seattle area called the Community Health Center of King County that was wanting to put an alternative medicine clinic in their system of six family medicine clinics. And they were looking for somebody that was open to doing that. So they pick me. Um, so my job, uh, so I, I spent four years with them and we opened in one of our clinics, uh, an alternative medicine clinic partnering with a school called Bastyr University, which is one of the four naturopathic universities in the country. And uh, so I started working side by side with naturopaths, acupuncturists, chiropractors, massage therapists, and I was seeing all the stuff they were doing. And I thought, I really need to start doing that all myself. And, uh, and it was a good atmosphere to learn it. But the problem is um, the medical doctors in that system were basically paid to see people, not necessarily paid to render health. And what I mean by that is, if you're going to really spend time getting to the root cause of a problem, not just give a drug to mask it, but look at diet, nutrition, talk about herbal therapies, talk about lifestyle changes, you need time to do it. And my system was not set up to do that because the grant sources really were to see patients. So in 2000, I decided if I'm going to continue my journey of doing 
alternative medicine um, and, and working with conventional medicine, I needed to go out on my own. So in 2000, I opened up my own practice in Seattle. And uh, one of the first things I added from an alternative medicine standpoint was acupuncture. I went and uh, got a acupuncture certificate. And because I was working naturally and with acupuncture, soon my waiting room filled up with people with fibromyalgia. And of course, fibromyalgia is usually attached to chronic fatigue syndrome. And so I had to, uh, so my practice slowly evolved into over four years into a practice that was predominantly made up of people that had chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And in 2004, one of my patients said, I think I have Lyme giving me my fibromyalgia chronic fatigue. And I was like, this is so bad. I said, I doubt it. I don't think we have Lyme out here. <laughs> so I wound up testing her and I did, I did the worst screening test. I, again, I really didn't know how to do this. I, I did um, a PCR test, which is looking, doing a blood test to see if there's the genetic material of the germ in you. And the reason that's the worst test, you guys probably know this, but PCR DNA testing for the germ will only find Lyme 30% of the time. So that's why it's the worst test. There's better ways to screen for it. So anyhow, um, it came back positive though. And Dr. Ross, can I interrupt you real quick? Because I want to ask a question. So, I mean, you are a natural minded medical doctor who was running a functional clinic in a larger network and was still frustrated because it wasn't going deep enough into functional medicine and you branched out to form your own clinic. Right. And despite that, now you're four years into running your own clinic, you had very little knowledge about Lyme disease and oh, the yeah. severity of tick-borne illnesses, right? I yeah. mean, that just goes to show you somebody as smart and you know educated as you still had very little knowledge back then about the yeah. dangers of ticks, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, even when I worked in my Senate job, one of the, there were some hearings we had around Lyme disease. And I even, I think Burriscano, Dr. Burriscano came in and I even then, I still was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> it was, I was skeptical um, of a lot of it. But, you know, but then skip forward, when I wound up doing that test, I, that was eye-opening. So, you know, my big word is if you've ever been diagnosed with chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, test for Lyme disease. And, and what I found in my practice, um, it was so eye-opening. I went back and retested every one of my patients that had been diagnosed with that had diagnosed with fibro or chronic fatigue. And I found 30% um, had Lyme disease. Yeah. And that's, that's in Seattle, Washington. I would suspect doctors doing similar work on the East coast because there is Lyme is more prevalent in the tick population out on the East coast that a lot, the percentages of people diagnosed with with a chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia that have Lyme probably is even much higher than the 30% I found out in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Ross, I just want to spend a quick minute, if you don't mind, talking about Dr. Biroscano and when he came to testify before Congress while you were working in Congress yeah. as, you know, this, this, you were writing healthcare law, essentially, right, on behalf of Congress people, correct? Right, right. So we've had Dr. Biroscano on this podcast. You know, he was a huge chronic Lyme advocate back in the day when he had his clinic here out of Long Island in New York, where we are. And he almost lost his license. And it took all of these, you know, elite people from the Hamptons funding his legal costs of over a million dollars to help him keep his license. And he continued to fight and continued to fight. What was it like on the other side, right? Because you were on the other side of this. You were seeing what the government officials 
were doing and how they were responding to Dr. Viroscano sort of rocking the boat, right? So what was that like yeah. on your side of the of the aisle watching so, this go down? So at that time, um, so my, at the time, the Democrats were in charge of the Senate. And so they, uh, Ted Kennedy and his staff set the agenda. I, my boss was the head Republican on that. So to be honest, it was the major issues that we were dealing with at that time um, were uh, the Clinton healthcare reform and then um, various aspects of U.S. public health. The, the hearings, I don't even think my boss went to the hearing, to be honest with you, the Burriscano hearing. And so although I know there was a lot looking back now, I understand there was a lot going on from my standpoint at that time. I don't remember we did much efforts at all because um, so, it, it was still uh, and I think it may have even been a field hearing that Kennedy's office led. I, we we my boss and I did not participate at that time. And, and now I know it's such a missed opportunity, but we, we didn't participate at that time. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you a question, actually, about. Uh you know, about have you were, you, you basically grew up in the Midwest and then you were on the East coast and your medical training, it's in places where there's ticks, right? There's ticks, Lyme disease. I mean, that was yeah. kind of like an, a, a known disease. How much training did you get on? Zero. Oh. Zero. So definitely in medical school at Indiana university and in Indianapolis, Indiana, I had none. Um, I now keep in mind, I, I was in this, my medical school was 84 to 88. And the big infection breaking at that time was um, HIV. And even when I, uh, that first year that I did in Washington, DC, after residency that I wound up um, um, doing health policy fellowship, that was part time. The other part time job I had was working with homeless people. And I did a lot of HIV management at that time. So the major infection we were all learning about and trying to figure out how to come to terms with at that time was HIV. Uh, it was, and that was the political illness of the time as well too, right? And so um, in the residency, um, we had no training at all on, on tick-borne illnesses and medical school, absolutely none. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, again, I, it was something I had to learn about in the real world back in 2000, eventually, yeah. Uh, one more question I wanted to ask about your, um, your journey. So you were talking about you, when you first um, got to, to see what medical practice could be like when you incorporated alternative therapies like acupuncture and counseling, did you, were you seeing changes in people that you weren't seeing with pharmaceutical drugs alone? And can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? What was happening? Yeah. So it's, it's really, you know, my journey, it's been a journey for me to, to work in this way. And when I, and so in, you know, 2000, 2004, when I had, uh, before I started managing Lyme, uh, my practice, again, was is a family practice that was an integrative medicine practice. So I was still between 2004, well, 2000 and 2007. There was a lot of primary care stuff I was doing. It wasn't until 2007 that it was more exclusively Lyme disease and 
and uh, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. So my approach was when people would come in with their sprained ankle or their bladder infection, primary care problems, I was really perplexed at first thinking about, well, how can I help people figure out what's going to be best for them? You know, I've got, I got these herbs I can use. We can do some, you know, diet, nutrition. We can do all kinds of things and do drugs. How is it that I'm going to help people figure out what to do? And so I, I've, what I finally figured out is it wasn't for me to decide. My job was to offer options. And what I really came to learn, and I still know this even in my, my practice too, because I now, you know, treating Lyme, I work with herbs, I work with prescriptions, I work with lifestyle. I pitch ideas. And I think intuitively, we all have a knower that knows what's going to be the best thing for us. And so I let my patients decide based on what resonates with them. I'll tell them, I say, you know, we could do this herb, we could do this lifestyle change, or we could do all of these things together. What resonates best with you? And now sometimes people can't make a decision. So we did in there and I'd, I'd help make a decision for them. But often there are people that acupuncture is always going to work on. And there are people that do acupuncture and never touch anything. We're all wired a little bit differently. And so my uh, eventually what I learned to do is be the person that pitches ideas and get out of the way and let the body and the person in front of me decide what's going to be best for them. Dr. And I found over time, that's what works best. That can be from managing a sprained ankle all the way up to managing the various complexities of Lyme disease. So, yeah. Dr. Ross, I just want to ask a quick follow-up on this because for me personally, I know a lot of people in the chronic Lyme community, fear is a major component in making a decision. And we want doctors just to tell us what to do. So how do you deal with that in treating patients, especially early on when you were dealing with fibro patients and chronic fatigue syndrome, and then, and then eventually chronic Lyme in 2004, when you presented these options, were you finding it difficult to work with patients to have them choose something when they were riddled with fear and cognitive impairment and doubting themselves and their ability to make an informed decision? So, you know, again, as, as I was saying, I give people choices, but sometimes people can't make the choice. And so, and then I would say, well, I think maybe for you, the better way we should go is this. So I would, I, I have no problem stepping in and even with my patients saying, you know, for your situation, if one of these isn't resonating with you, let's go this direction. I think it's going to give you the better odds. So I, I'll wind up doing that. So I'm sorry, Jenny, I know I keep interrupting your, your flow here, but I just have so many follow-up questions. I mean, go for it. When Dr. Ross, before Jenny continues on with this, when you first got your, your positive Lyme test, when you thought Lyme doesn't exist here, but I'm going to run it anyway, and you were surprised and you went back and ran it on all of your fibro patients and found that 30% of them tested positive. What were you doing to treat these people at the time? Because now it's really new to you, right? So were you having success in treating this first patient? And when you have, were you having any success in treating the 30% that tested positive with fibromyalgia? So it's interesting. I, when I first learned about Lyme and, and realized that I had patients in my practice with Lyme disease, I had to get training. Um, so I started attending the uh, International Lyme Associated Society, ILADS, their various annual meetings, but also at that time, and they still have it, they have um, a clerkship training program where you can go work side by side with somebody that treats Lyme disease. And um, so what I did is I got, a two, I went, I believe it was for two weeks, I wound up going down to uh, Northern California 
to work in the office of Dr. Steve Harris. Um, and uh, many of you may know Steve. Steve's one of the leading Lyme docs in the country, but his um, father is Nick Harris, who founded Igenix. So <laughs> it's in the uh, it's in the pedigree of, of them. But but I did wind up working with uh, Steve Harris uh, for two weeks. And I also, uh, at that time, I think Boris Gano had out his uh, paper on how his um, protocol on managing Lyme disease. And so that was a background. The ideas that I got working with Steve Harris in his office for two weeks, I had that as background. And as I started treating people, um, I would try things uh, based on that. And then I would also um, reach out to Steve Harris with many questions and often <laughs> saying, help, I'm trying to figure out what to do with this person. What would you do? So I had, fortunately, I had some support uh, from him uh, periodically uh, when I got myself in a pinch then too. Uh, I'm curious to know how, when you, uh, either with some of the patients that you went back to or or people who came with a diagnosis of fibro or, or CSF, or at some point when it transitioned to ME-CSF, um, were they receptive to the idea that Lyme could be a, a potential cause for their symptoms? Because both of those illnesses have, you know, fought so hard for legitimacy sort of right. in the scientific realm. Right. So I'm curious to know when you said, well, hey, there could be this, you know, Lyme component, what the yeah. response was. So I think, um, so I think people generally are open to it. Um, people want to know the cause of their problem. And if you look at uh, fibromyalgia or you look at chronic fatigue syndrome, when you really get into those, after you've ruled out anything else that could be giving you muscle achiness, fibromyalgia, or chronic fatigue, um, basically those are diagnoses when you get down to it that say, we don't really know what's causing it. So people like to know what's causing their problem, right? So if I can say, look, it's this tick bite you had years ago that gave you germs that's causing all of your achiness and causing your fatigue, people are very open to that. Um, and, and these days, I mean, subsequently, you know, between 2007 and now, I also know another illness that looks all like this too, that gives you an explanation, which is chronic mold toxicity. Um, both Lyme disease, chronic mold toxicity uh, can look identical. And the way what makes them identical is they trigger the immune system to overmake a group of chemicals called cytokines. Um, cytokines are good. They turn the immune system on, but cytokines are bad in excess and excess cytokines make it so you can't think, you hurt all over, you can't sleep, uh, interferes with your hormonal functions. Basically what we call Lyme disease symptoms are cytokine symptoms. Mold toxicity is cytokine symptoms. And so, you know, these days for these symptoms, I can give people explanations often. Thankfully I can. So people are open to it. The, the tricky part is when they get that Lyme disease diagnosis, they think they have an, a good solution right away. And as you know, from your journey and all of you know, from your journeys, you know that, yeah, it's, it's good. It gives you the chance of a cure. It gives you the chance of getting well, but I have to caution people. I mean, they're 85% of the time that you get a Lyme disease diagnosis, we can get you well. There's 15% of people we just don't know the way they're yet. I mean, there's research going on, uh, but um, you know, 15% have a really rocky time. And even if you do get well, 
sometimes it's a two-year, three-year, four-year journey, right? So people often are very glad to know the cause, but then I have to just be very careful and you know, tempering it with them to say, okay, now the work begins. We have a journey in front of you. Dr. Ross, can you just j- describe, and a lot of our listeners know, but you, ref- you refer to the cytokine symptoms. And that became a really popular word during COVID and the pandemic. And we know it's really important with Lyme disease and you mentioned mold as well, right? So yeah. can you just give our listeners an explanation of what that means, a cytokine symptom and how Lyme and mold invoke this cytokine storm in our bodies? Yeah. So let me just start. So many of, I think you may realize, um, you guys realize, but for your listeners. So I have a Lyme disease treatment protocol that you can find online. So my Lyme information site is located at treatlyme.net and it's called Treat Lyme by Marty Ross MD. And, And on the top navigation menu, you can find something called my Lyme disease protocol. And in that Lyme protocol, they list a number of steps that a person should consider doing as part of a Lyme disease treatment. So it's not just as simple as take these antibiotics, you're going to get better. Most of what my protocol is about is trying to remedy the effects of excess cytokines. Okay. Now, my protocol has two key parts built into it is one is make sure you don't have something else triggering cytokines. So I even say at the beginning, go ahead and test for mold toxicity, especially if you know you've had mold exposures, you should look for it, okay? But also another step built in there is to make sure that you don't have too many yeast living in your intestines at the beginning. I have, and the reason is, is too many yeast in your intestines that people could have gotten from being on antibiotics in the past, stress, uh, birth control sometimes is a setup. There's a number of setups for getting too many yeast in your intestines. It too also triggers too many cytokines. Okay. So my whole protocol is around looking at what are your causes of cytokines? So Lyme, possible yeast, possible mold toxicity, and then trying to address any of those. So again, what happens is if your immune system sees a Lyme germ in you or sees um, a COVID germ in you or sees yeast in you or sees a mold toxin in you, some of your white blood cells will see those and they'll release these chemicals called cytokines. And there's a, there's a host of cytokines. There's a number of different kinds of cytokines. So it's kind of a, a global grab bag term. But ultimately, what all those cytokines are supposed to do is to try to get your immune system turned on. And they'll do it by causing more white blood cells to be made. They help draw those white blood cells to where the infection or toxin is, and they help those white blood cells work better, okay? But if the immune system by itself is not able to remedy these problems, it'll react by making, trying harder, and it will make more and more and more cytokines. And it's those excess cytokines, again, that give you sleep disturbances, make you hurt all over, they interfere with how your brain tells your hormonal uh, systems to work, et cetera, et cetera. So they're all cytokine symptoms. Now, so I, yeah. I think what you said, Dr. Russo, is right. It's with Lyme, there are other things that create cytokine symptoms as well. Yep. And at, what you do in your practice is look at all those things that are commonly associated with Lyme to create cytokines, which create these symptoms and create this chronic illness in your patients. And you address all of them, Lyme being one of them. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So Lyme is one of them. I mean, so if, um, so there's two, I'll, I'll start by saying there's two things that are 
Well, actually, let me go a different angle. Um, you can test positive for Lyme. I've had people that have come in to me and say, I think I have Lyme disease. Here's my positive test. Here's all of my symptoms. And I look at them and I say, yes, it could be Lyme. You have a positive test and you have all of the symptoms that look like Lyme. But then I start taking a history and I say, tell me more about when you got sick. Where were you living? What did your house look like? Did you have a barn? And sometimes I'll learn that they were doing great. They had no health problems until they moved into the house that had black mold. All right. So in that case, I want to start treating black mold because having a positive Lyme test and Lyme symptoms does not mean you have Lyme disease. Right. It is possible that if somebody gets a tick bite, gets Lyme, that their immune system can react and get the germ under control, which is why you have a positive Lyme test, your immune system reacted, but it doesn't mean that the germ is still causing you problems. So there have been people that have seen me that, then I took their history and I looked at them and I decided, wow, I think black mold is what got you sick. Let's clear that first. I spend six months getting working on that and we're done. We, we get the mold out and they are totally healthy and I never do anything for the Lyme. Dr. Ross, can I follow up on that? Because a lot of yeah. other doctors we've had on this podcast say that once Lyme disseminates, it really never gets fully eradicated. Dr. Alan McDonald, Dr. Biroscano, we've talked about say that it's there, but your body can manage it. So are you arguing that if somebody had Lyme and they managed it, they're still going to present antibodies, but their body's managing it, but it's the mold that's resulting in the symptoms. And if you get the mold under control, then your body can manage the Lyme that may be in your body and you can move on with a symptom-free life. Or are you saying that the Lyme is actually eradicated in most cases, even for chronic patients? So um, that's a good question. And the answer is probably for some people, um, I think our immune systems can get rid of the germ. I understand McDonald and Berskano's opinion too. What I'm saying, I'm saying for some people, the immune system does what the immune system is supposed to do. It eradicates the germ. For other people, what may happen is the immune system also does what it's supposed to do, which is put the germs under control. So as an example, we live, many of us um, live with chronic virus infections in us that never give us problems. So a monovirus, which is Epstein-Barr, or something called human herpes virus type six, something called cytomegalovirus, are viruses that if we were to pull a bunch of healthy people off the street and test, we would find antibody reactions against those viruses. And we recognize that these are chronic infections that live in a person um, that the immune system keeps under control. And I think that for some people with Lyme, the immune system can eradicate for other people with Lyme, the immune system does what it's supposed to do, which is keep the germ under control. I have to hit on something else you said that I just feel like my mind exploded in the middle of, of something you said. <laughs> so I have to... <laughs> So you, you, you said, um, just, you know, when people have a positive test, um, and they have symptoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have Lyme disease. And that goes, I, I want to make sure I heard that correctly, because that goes against so many things that many Lyme literate practitioners say, actually, they kind of use a simple, a simple formula. If you, if you have symptoms, 
and you test positive, you have Lyme. That's a very common, I hear it, I see it. I've probably even written it. Oops, maybe, you yeah, know? Yeah. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Because you're saying that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So I'm going to give you two examples and then I'm going to answer that. Okay. So first of all, there is um, a patient that came to see me that had gotten bit by a tick in Indiana. And uh, she happened to be living out in Oregon at the time. Uh, had a bullseye rash, had all the symptoms that looked like Lyme. When she came to see me, though, her face was covered with acne. And she, probably about 30 years old, 30-year-olds should not have extensive acne on their face, okay? One of the things that leads to extensive acne can be intestinal yeast overgrowth. And so when I looked at her, and the reason that that, that happens is too many yeast in the intestines not only trigger your immune system to make cytokines, but they release toxins. And those toxins can interact with the skin, leading to extensive acne problems in some people, not everyone, but some people. So anyhow, with her, um, I took a, the history and she had tons of symptoms of too many yeast. She had intestinal gassiness and bloating. Every time she had sugar, her health fell apart. I mean, I could go down the list. She just had a lot of symptoms of too many yeast. So what we did, what I did with her before putting her on anything for Lyme, because I, I thought she might have Lyme disease, but I wasn't, but she also had such bad yeast that I know yeast triggers cytokines, giving a syndrome that looks like Lyme disease. I should deal with this yeast first. Also, I need to deal with the yeast first because I can't put antibiotics in her right now. If I did, her gut would have just gone crazy with too many yeast already being there, right? So we spent a month cleaning up yeast, she came back and she was 95% well. Asked her more questions, her yeast weren't all the way gone. We spent another month cleaning up her, her intestines. And by the time she came back to me, she was 100% well. So you never had to treat the bullseye rash? Never did. Wow. All right, second, second example. Okay, and then I got to sum it up. Okay, guy comes to see me in, in Seattle. Um, brought in by his mom. He'd seen a naturopathic doctor. His mom's a nurse and uh, she was very concerned for him. He had seen a naturopath in town that uh, because he basically could not think, terrible fatigue, lost his job. I mean, just bad shape. And um, especially with the neurocognitive issues he was having, she, the naturopath said, uh, his test was positive for Lyme. She said, you need to go out to GEMSEC in Washington, DC and get on IV antibiotics right now, or you're never going to be able to think again. She scared him to death. And his mom being a nurse said, I need, a, we need another opinion on this. And so brought him in. So his, his, his I mean, he's, he's a really sick guy, but anyhow, the story, as I said, I always take a detailed history. I'm looking at, well, what else could be doing this? And his story was, he did never, never remembered a tick bite, but he does remember moving into a home that uh, the old previous owners had had an aquarium in a back room. And when he got sick, it was in that home almost two, about a week or two after he moved in, he got sick with a building that had an aquarium in it. Okay. So then I started querying him. I said, was there any mold on the wall back there? Yeah, there was tons of mold back there. Got a real-time test for mold toxins, came back loaded with mold toxins. We spent six months cleaning out mold toxins in him. And after six months, he was 100% well, back in a job, 
back functioning fully in life, no symptoms at all. Okay. So my, whenever we diagnose something in medicine, we're supposed when people come in with symptoms, we're supposed to go ahead and create what's known as a differential, which is what are the possible causes of this? Okay. So, you know, these illnesses, you always wonder about yeast overgrowth. You wonder about mold toxicity and you wonder about tick-borne illnesses. And if, if just having a tech, the problem or the thing about Lyme testing is most of our Lyme testing is immune reaction testing. So the immunoblots, Western blots are measuring, has your immune system made antibodies against this germ? They really don't tell us whether the germ is in you. They're just antibody reaction test, right? And so I know you can make it, your immune system can make antibodies if it's dealt with an infection, maybe even got rid of that infection. So what had happened with both of these people, and this is the example I'm trying to say is, we always have to say, yeah, you, have, you got a tick bite, you got a bullseye rash, you got positive symptoms, you got, all, you got uh, positive testing, but is there something else that could be giving you all these symptoms because is it possible your immune system dealt with this? And for some, not, not the majority, but for a small percentage, their immune system can't deal with it. And if we just get their yeast taken care of, if it's there, or we get their mold toxicity taken care of, if it's there, that's it. That's all we need to do. And I've got countless stories of doing that, basically. Dr. Ross, but this is very consistent with recent studies, right? I mean, just in the last six months, this study came out across the globe that about 15% of people in America have Lyme antibodies, right? Which means they probably were, their, their, their immune system came into contact with the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. Yeah. And many of them are never sick. And if yeah. that's the case, why are those people not getting sick? And why are people like Jenny and I getting so sick? And yeah. I think it's, a, it's really a multifaceted complex answer to your point, but the things you see most commonly are things like yeast and things like mold, where yes, you have probably Lyme disease because you had a bullseye rash and a tick bite in the, in the case of your first patient example. But, you know, the, the yeast overgrowth is now ca is causing you to be really sick. And if we address that, your immune system can do what it's supposed to do and manage the Lyme like it does in many other people who are not symptomatic, but yet carrying the bacteria or, or had it and was able to effectively fight it off, right? So I think you're arguing that it's never just, hey, you have Lyme disease, let's go after the Lyme. It's what else is going on. And maybe the Lyme is just one of many things, but we have to address something else that is the more aggressive root cause as to why you're having symptoms. Is that what, was that what you're saying? I, I want to make sure I'm summarizing or thinking yeah. what you're, well, about what you're saying correctly. And let, let me describe, yes. And let me describe it even a different way. Um, there is in natural medicine and naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, there's a phenomenon known as total load phenomenon. And what it is, is when somebody has, is, has dis-ease, disease, dis-ease, what are the things that could contribute to that disease? So, and if, so, but what, but there could be many different things that are adding up to cause the problem. Now, to get a person well does not mean you need to fix all of them. All right. You just need to pull enough of those problems out that their body steps in and does the rest. Okay. Or the analogy I like to use is the rain barrel analogy. You put enough, if you have a rain barrel and there's all these drops of bad health going into it, it eventually overflows. All right. So the solution is stop the drops going in. So remove those insults and open up the spigot on the bottom so that some of that water starts flowing out. That doesn't mean you empty the whole rain barrel of all the causes. 
It just means you reestablish the body's ability to manage the stuff, basically. I'll share one other thing with you too. So I, um, I used, again, as you know, I, I lived out in Washington, D.C. area, and I was an avid backpacker. I used to go into the, the wilderness of, of West Virginia all the time, me and my dog. I never saw a tick, but Lord knows what I know now, I'm sure. I'm sure I had multiple exposures out there. I mean, it would have been impossible not to, right? So um, I had been in a relationship uh, with a woman that actually did get Lyme disease. And as I was leaving that relationship, I decided I'm going to test myself for Lyme. So I had a Western blot done. My Western blot lights up more than I have ever seen any of my patients. I have more bands that are positive on my Western blot than most people that come to see me in my office. Okay. But I have never had Lyme disease. I'm healthy. I have no health problems at all. And so the question is, where did I get it? I mean, is it possible I got it through sexual transmission? Maybe, um, you know, there's controversies around that, but also maybe I picked it up hiking in West Virginia and didn't even know because, you know, 50% of the time people have Lyme, they don't remember a tick bite and I am a healthy person. I have the most reactive Western blood I have ever seen. Honestly, I do. And so it brings home that point again the body is wonderful. The body for many people can take care of this. Not everyone. Um, the last point I'll make on this, um, many of you know the, uh, the documentary Under Our Skin. And the first one, the first one, the, the first one they made years ago, when it first came out, one of the scenes that they're showing is a, a scene in Lyme, Connecticut, where the videographer and uh, the person they're interviewing are driving down a street in Lyme, Connecticut. And she says, all the people in that house have it. The people there, they don't have it in that house. The people next door, they all have it. Okay. They're all getting exposed to the same ticks. All of them are getting exposed to the same ticks in their backyards. And yet there are some families that get just decimated. And there are many families that never have any problem at all. And what it is, it's a, it's a different in how immune systems work. It could be genetic programming, environmental influences, et cetera. But some of us have immune systems that are designed better to deal with this thing than others, basically. Matt, our immune systems got shortchanged somewhere along the line. Yeah, I think Jenny, we got the we got the short sticks in life, didn't we? I don't know. Oh, However, no, and I I don't even mean that as a blame. <laughs> thing. No, 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 yeah, no. Yeah. We, we, we're teasing, Doctor Ross. I yeah, mean, yeah. look, Jenny and I have gone through it, but I think we are ultimately stronger because of it is and as corny yeah. as it sounds we are more educated and stronger physically and mentally because of this of this experience and yeah and i do want to touch on one thing because it, it's something that we hear often in this community is you know what what are these different factors you touched on mold you touched on yeast overgrowth right you touch on various things that coupled with exposure to lime will cause chronic illness so can you just expand upon that and give us some more things that our, our listeners should look out for because you know, if I'm treating Lyme and I'm not getting better, what else should I be looking for? We have, we have bacterial overgrowth. We have, you know, things like SIBO, we have things like mold, but you know, a lot of people in the chronic Lyme community end up with autoimmune things as well. Now is Lyme causing the autoimmune or is it where some people are genetically predisposed to autoimmune disease and when they become sick with Lyme, it gets triggered. And now that's another dog pile effect, making people sick, right? So maybe autoimmune and other things you can bring into the fold here to discuss 
what other things people should be on the lookout for that can be contributing to chronic illness along with a tick bite, Lyme disease, and, and other tick-borne illnesses? So first of all, um, I'll, I'll point out some things to address in any treatment, okay? And these are things you can find in my Ross Lyme support protocol. These are steps that help lower cytokines and get the immune system working better. So everyone should be trying to get seven to nine hours of sleep a night. And if you've got to use herbs to do that, or you got to drug yourself to do it, try to get seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Seven to nine hours of sleep a night helps lower cytokines, which helps your immune system start working better. Number two, um, get on some kind of herbs that help lower cytokines. My favorite is curcumin. Um, there's quercetin can do it, but get on something that helps lower cytokines. Number three, support your adrenal and your thyroid glands um, to help you fight the battle. And so I like using an herb called ashwagandha that does that, okay? Uh, number four, if yeast is in there, try to get it out and control yeast during your treatment. Um, number five, um, try to be on as plant-based of a diet as you can. And the reason I go with that is plant-based whole foods mean you're not using processed foods that are putting more toxins in you, for instance. Okay. And so I, I usually do, then you could do that as a paleo, you could do it as a Mediterranean diet that's plant forward, but something that's low inflammatory, you should be doing that. Uh, get yeast out if it's there, look for mold toxins if they're there, um, and make sure that you have treated all of your tick-borne infections. So a big mistake people make is that their Lyme test is positive, but somebody tested them for uh, Bartonella and Babesia, and those tests came back negative, so they don't treat for Babesia or Bartonella well. Bartonella Babesia testing, even with some of the improvements in testing we've seen, test misses it often. So you've got to do a really detailed history and look at um, based on symptoms, are there enough Bartonella symptoms there? Based on symptoms, are there a lot of Babesia symptoms there? And if they are, you've got to take care of those as well while you're also taking care of the Lyme infection. So make sure you've got all your infections taken care Dr. of. Dr. Ross, quick in interruption here. Can you just give yeah. us a, a few examples of symptoms that are specific to Bartonella and or Babesia? Yeah. So our listeners can know if I have these symptoms, these are exclusive to Babesia and Bartonella and I should sure. work with my doctor to go down that road. Sure, sure. So uh, symptoms that, um, and this is, I build this into my, my first visit with the patient. I always target I say, okay, now I'm going to ask you about some questions that might indicate Babesia. And I'm going to ask you about some questions that might indicate Bartonella. Okay, so the Babesia questions are um, frequent drenching night sweats. That doesn't mean every day, but it means more than once a month, okay? But, but frequent drenching night sweats. Um, having a symptom that you can't get enough air from time to time, we call that air hunger. Uh, can be Babesia. Also, that can be a Bartonella symptom too, but I still ask it on the Babesia list. Um, having a lot of anxiety attack or panic attacks um, can be part of Babesia. Having a lot of frontal headaches can be part of Babesia. Um, having uh, one of my favorite odd symptoms when people get Babesia, some have very frequent deja vu experiences like mm -hmm multiple times a day or daily, they experience deja vu. And what's interesting about that one is when it's there, as they start getting better, that usually goes away. It's a good way of tracking if it's there. Okay. So those are what I think of Babesia. And Babesia also, of all the tick-borne infections, it is the most fatiguing. 
And if you've got somebody that you've done line management and their energy is still stuck, I got to go back frequently and keep asking them at future visits to see, did the Babesia symptoms, are they unmasked? And is it more clear to me now that they have Babesia? So that's the other question I would say is, I'm always asking at every visit about Babesia and Bartonella because sometimes as you start clearing Lyme, which doesn't, things that may not, that were, are there originally may not be apparent, but as you peel that layer of Lyme or you peel that layer of Bartonella, suddenly the Babesia symptoms come screaming out and you've got to step in and address Babesia too, okay? All right, Bartonella symptoms would be things like, um, extreme cognitive thinking impairment that is relatively a lot worse than the energy impairment. Okay. So, you know, my energy is down 50%, but my brain function is only 10%. Think Bartonella, for instance. Okay. A uh, pain on the soles of the feet or the balls of the feet. I mean, um, people sometimes with Bartonella will get a scratch mark, stretch mark rash, they often will have a lot of um, uh, neurologic, so neuropathies, loss of feeling or nerve pain. They might have tremors and shakes and seizures. They also tend to have a lot of uh, psychiatric, especially pervasive ongoing anxiety. If I see somebody in my practice that says, I have just been anxious all of the time, right away, I'm thinking Bartonella, that um, Lyme can do it, but that tends to be more of a Bartonella symptom too. So anyhow, to answer your question there, and then uh, back to the other things you might want to think about if you're not getting better. Um, so there's a variety of things. Number one, always look for mold. Number two, um, I'd like to think of the possibility of um, autoimmune disease triggered by Lyme. And, um, and so what I like using for that is something called low-dose naltrexone. I might just do a trial. I, when I do that, I like giving at least six months to see if that will help get the autoimmune component or imbalance in the immune system under better control. Um, the other thing that might give ongoing symptoms is ongoing tissue injury. And these days, what I like using for that is I like using some peptide therapies, um, specifically a type of peptide called BPC-157, which is of all the peptides we can use, I would call it the Swiss army knife. I have seen some really wonderful improvements when people do that because it can, it can repair tissue injuries. Another thing to think about is um, brain or limbic system uh, perpetuation of the illness or holding of the illness. The limbic system is a uh, part of your brain that um, is in charge of reproduction, but it also can be triggered into an on position where you become just reactive to anything around you. And that um, gives you a lot of your ongoing symptoms too. So there's ways that you can work to reprogram that area of the brain to be less reactive. Uh, there's something called DNRS, any hoppers, DNRS, or there's a different method called the Gupta method. These are all ways of looking to kind of reprogram that area as well too. And then the last thing, the current theory about why people may not be getting well is that they may have these things called persister cells, which is your germs have been treated with antibiotics, but a number of them have gone into hibernation. And in a hibernating form, the standard antibiotics we historically use don't get rid of them. And so now there's various herbal antibiotics we can use and something called disulfiram we can use to get at those persisters. And so those are a bunch of things that I'm considering when somebody isn't getting well.
I'm taking all that in. I feel like that was extremely helpful. And I feel like when I, I don't know about you, Matt, but I feel like when I um, think back, even on my own journey, I'm like, there's certain things that I, I think I missed. Yes. <laughs> that I could go back and do that I could do better though I'm doing quite well but I'm like that's a good roadmap for me to go back through and I feel like that's so not only is that helpful for treatment but it is also helpful if you feel like there's a kind of a sticking point that maybe maybe you want to push it a little farther maybe you've had 75 percent healing and you want to go a little further this is a good roadmap to be able to go back and sort of self-assess too, or assess with your doctor, whatever the case may be, but, and, and go, where might I uh, have some issues that I could still uh, deal yeah. with that might propel me forward? Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, there's, so I, I did, as, as you guys know, I, I, I just released a book. It's called Hacking Lyme Disease, an Action Guide to Wellness. And it's basically a compilation of about 40 different key, what I call key articles uh, from my Lyme information site. And I have in there an opening chapter, which basically says it's about things you should know before you begin treating or before you treat again. And one of those chapters in there basically is, these are the reasons that treatment could fail. Make sure you address these of which that whole list I just went through is there. Okay. And, but you can find that on my website too. You just basically type in, I'm not getting better. You'll find um, that article basically. Okay. The, the newest thing though, that I think um, I'm becoming more um, interested in and, or not interested in, but more aware of is is the issue of disturbance of your gut microbiome. And that could be perpetuating illness as well too. So, you know, unfortunately to get people well, we have to poison germs. We, we just do. We're either gonna poison them with herbal antibiotics or we're gonna poison them with prescription antibiotics. And the regrettable consequence of that is you create imbalance in the good healthy bacteria and uh, the germs that make up what's known as the intestinal microbiome. And we are now, the amount of research on what this intestinal microbiome does is exponential in the last four or five years. It's just taking off. And so the things we now know about the gut are even different than seven years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And so it is possible that when people have chronic ongoing disturbance, that, that some of that may be from disruption of the gut microbiome. That gut microbiome is responsible for balancing how your immune system works. It sends chemicals to the brain for good nerve function and good psychiatric function. It helps detox. It helps remove allergens. I mean, there's just a host of things. So one of the things that I, I now do in my treatments is when somebody comes to see me, although I may offer prescription antibiotics and herbal antibiotics, all things being equal, I tend to try to go more herbal antibiotics first these days. Um, and, and then that may not be the right choice for everyone. I mean, I'm saying all things being equal, right? But the thing about the herbs is we may get into less GI disturbance. And the other thing at the end of treatment, if I've got anyone that's having a lot of gas bloating issues, I'm always going to try to do a last cleanup of intestinal yeast. 
I'm going to try to make sure that they don't have something called SIBO, small intestine bacteria overgrowth, which also can trigger too many cytokines. So I, I want to spend time at the end of treatment using a variety of probiotics to clean the gut up. During treatment, I am much more aggressive using a variety of probiotics to protect the gut while I'm poisoning germs as well, too. So Dr. Ross, I just wanted to take the time to highlight your website because we have interviewed a lot of doctors and a lot of people in this community who are health coaches or advocates, and your website is by far the best I've ever come across. It is just chock full of information, easy to follow, and I want our listeners to know how to get there and what's on your website. So I'm just going to take a quick moment to say that your website is treatlime.net. Is that correct, Dr. Ross? Yes, it is. Yeah. And on there, you have your complete Lyme support protocol, which is a protocol to treat chronic Lyme disease. And it's a very easy to follow protocol. You yes. also have an online Lyme guide with three sections, Lyme disease 101, germ control and more, and medical problem solutions, which is really comprehensive with a ton of good data and information. You also host weekly webinars through your website. And these are Lyme Q&A webinars where people can actually ask you questions and you give them answers based on their own experiences. You wrote your book, as you noticed, as you mentioned, Hacking Lyme Disease, an Action Guide to Wellness, which people can find on your website as well, which again is chock full of information for the chronic Lyme community. And now you're about to start this Lyme People, a community powering health online community, which is going to launch, I think, in a few months we saw on your website. Yeah. And you're going to be hosting this on the Circle platform where people can get together and, and with your help support each other in their healing journey. So all of this is available on your website. And I encourage everybody listening to go to your website, treatlime.net. And Dr. Ross, did we miss anything? Any other key information you want to share about your website and your resources before yeah, so you the, continue on? Yeah, the meat and potato of that website is uh, under what's called my online Lyme guide. If you click on that, there's this huge drop-down menu that drops down and basically uh, has all the articles I've written organized into categories. So there's a category on pain, for instance. There's another one on sleep. And you can see anything I've written. The thing you, and, and you guys know this, but anyone should know, I've tried to write this site from the vantage point of a how-to manual. Um, I give you enough background and science so you understand what I'm going to recommend. But the focus of each one of the articles I write is to give you options, both herbal and prescription, to manage various aspects of your health. And I've written it for people living with the illness, not for physicians, but for people. Now, I will tell you, the greatest number of users of my website are physicians, or not the greatest. The greatest would be people living, but a large number of physicians and practitioners utilize my resources <laughs> to, to help people, which is great. It's really good, okay? But when you, if you go to that online Lyme guide and you, you hover over it, you'll see my drop-down menu. And there's a tab all the way over to the left side called Key Info. And the articles that are in that key info are the same ones that make up chapter one of my line book. These are the background pieces. There's one in here about what works to get you well. There's another one that says when chronic Lyme fails, what else can you try? And there's another one about protecting the intestinal microbiome. Those are like key foundational articles you probably should look at at the beginning of your treatment so that you have these as background before you jump into my whole per treatment protocol as well too. And I forgot to mention your supplements. You have a supplement website, which is part of your treatline.net where you've handpicked the best supplements, brands, and products that yeah. people can go and use for a variety of things. And I, I like now that we've had this interview, I understand it better. 
a lot of things that that are you know cytokine generated symptoms you have a variety of of supplements that'll help address that particular cause of the cytokine right and people can go there and pick based on what they're experiencing what they need help with and you'll recommend supplements to help them on their journey and i think you can even, you even give them links where they can buy it directly on your site is that correct yeah so my um so the way that, so to be honest, I mean, the way that I support my information site is through sales from the supplement store. I mean, you, you know, I can't, it takes a lot of time to manage it, but, and what I try to do in my supplement store, these are the same products I use in my patients. The, the one thing we got to be worry about with supplements is there's just a lot of garbage products out there. And so I've, I've tried to curate a selection of supplements that um, are what I would call physician grade that have a body of knowledge behind them. It says they work and the manufacturers have a proven track record of producing good stuff. Okay. So one of the big questions I always get from people is, well, which product should I use? Well, I've tried because of, you know, the difficulties of finding good quality products, you can find them at my store. So if you're ever wondering well, what curcumin should I use? You can go to my store, just write curcumin in the search bar and you'll see what I use. Now you can buy it from me or you can buy it elsewhere, but it's a good place to start and say, what's a good quality product. In terms of my site, I, again, these are the products I use with my patients. So I, I have a track record of working with them and I trust them. But the second thing is the problem with supplements are expensive. And, um, you know, and even on my site, you'll see some of them are expensive. The issue is for all of us that sell online, the manufacturers restrict us and what we can offer. So everything I sell, I sell at the lowest amount the manufacturer allows me to sell for. If I sell lower, they would pull the ability. So I, I can't. But what I do though, to make it more affordable is I pay for your shipping if your order is over $50. And the other thing I do is if you're in a state or jurisdiction that has a sales tax, I cover all that for you too. You don't have to pay that. So in ways that I can, I've tried to make it more affordable. I, I, I got to admit supplements are expensive though, but yeah, it's a good starting point. If you're looking at what to use, look at my site. And if you're looking for reasonable prices, because again, I cover shipping and I cover your taxes, it's a good place to go to. I just have to say as someone who has used your site, I appreciate that connection right to the supplements, but I also like how you have laid the treatment plan, like the treatment protocols out. You give option one, you give option two, you give option three. It's medications, it's herbs. And it's also sort of like, if this doesn't work, you got another option. And if that one doesn't work, you've got another option. And so personally from your website, I have always found a lot of hope and a lot of new ideas when I've hit a, a bump in the road. So it's great. Yes. Check it out. Everyone, check it out. I, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I'm a fan. Um, I have like a million questions I want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, we only I have, have another half hour. <laughs> okay. I have... <laughs> I have two, I have two very important ones, Matt. Jenny, uh, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you ride for a bit. Okay. So I'm going to go in one direction and I'm going to go in the other. Cause I really want to know the answers to both of these, but the first one I want to know, what's your take on remission versus recovery versus, um, cure 
where yeah. do you stand on that? Because everybody uses different terminology and, yeah. and even patients talk about, they're like, I'm in remission or, yeah. but, but patients who have done well for a long period of time, they might feel cured or recovered. So what's your right. take on that? Right. So let me, um, I, I'll, I'll be glad to answer that for you. So this has sparked a lot of debate on the ILADS discussion board too. So International Lyme Associated Society, um, many of us that belong also can participate in a discussion forum that they have. One of our um, physicians that belongs to that group is a physician named Betty Maloney. And Dr. Maloney doesn't treat Lyme now, but she is very aware of science and she's our chief arguer <laughs> with the rest of the commun medical community, but is also very staunch and is very much a taskmaster with all of us in that group that when we make claims on something, she'll say, where's the science? She holds us accountable, okay? Anyhow, she held us accountable, uh, a, a number of us accountable a while back over um, what is it, do we ever believe people can be cured? And so the issue with cure is cure means every germ is gone, okay? Maybe that's what it means. And we don't have a test. There is no test we can do that says your germs are all gone. It doesn't exist, okay? So the issue is we can't test you to say if, um, if all of the germs are gone. We have no way of knowing that. So generally what came out of this discussion is there's a general feeling that if somebody has been symptom-free for at least two years, we probably can call them cured. That's a group of people that the, all of us that treat that if somebody goes symptom-free for two years, we tend not to see those people come back in with relapse symptoms. We tend never to see them again, okay? So out of that discussion forum, what came out is kind of a general opinion that if you have no symptoms of Lyme, you were treated and you are free for two years, you're probably cured. You probably can't transmit. You probably can't give it to your newborn baby, all that stuff. Okay, that was kind of the general impression. Now, do we have any science that proves that? No, but that was a general observation of everyone. And now it's kind of Betty was holding us to task on that. And I appreciate her uh, doing that. Um, in terms of remission then, um, so I think when somebody gets well, I tell them, look, you're well, this is graduation day. We're gonna stop treating you, okay? And well, for some people may mean they get 100% well. For other people, it may mean they don't get 100% well because they've got some ongoing injury created by the germ, but I don't think the germ is any longer active. So in my practice, what I do is if somebody is symptom-free for two months, I stop treating with antibiotics. If somebody is doing a lot better and they are at a plateau for four months. And no matter what crazy things I change and I try to address, nothing seems to get better. After about four months, I'll say to them, I think it's time to stop. We may have gotten you all the better we're gonna get, okay? Because we have to recognize sometimes this in infection, this illness can leave injury, chronic ongoing injury as well too, okay? Now I gotta admit, these days I use a lot more BPC-157 because that seems to take people the extra step to get all the way there. But um, so there's a group of people I do think that we get well, and at two years, if they stay well, then I'm gonna say they're cured. Other than that, I'm gonna say you're probably in remission. Um, if um, I think it's fair to say in that period between one and two years, 
you may just be in remission. After two years, if you stay there, I would say you're cured. Do I know for sure? No. Is it possible that there that there these people that people with the illness have germ in them that the immune system is managing and, and doing well? That's possible too. Um, so I think there are some people we may cure. There are some people that we put into remission, maybe even to permanent remission. I think it can be all those, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, and that yeah. makes sense. Um, are you? At what stage are people still um, managing symptoms with some sort of protocol? Where does that fit on that spectrum? Yeah, so I think, you know, and part of part of the problem with what I'm about ready to say is, you know, people stop seeing me, right? So I, I don't have ways of tracking and no one has done long-term research here, but there's probably about 85% of people I think we get either 100% well or well, and they never need treatment again. There's 15% that I think have a chronic ongoing line for which they either need to be permanently on herbal or prescription antibiotics to keep the germ under control, or they need to be on something that we're going to keep managing their immune system, that, uh, or they're still trying to find the magic combination that's even going to get health improvements for them. Okay. That's about 15% of people, I think. Now, I'm not sure. Did I answer the question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because um, I think there's a lot of, you know, I, like I I know s some patients that have uh, gotten to the point where they don't need to do anything, you know, they, they, they got well and it was a long slog to yeah. get there. It didn't happen overnight. It was many years, yeah. but now they don't need anything. Right. And then I know there there's people like me, I'd be one. I think Matt, you'd probably be another where we, we have to maintain some sort of treatment and that's kind of a loose phrase, but you yeah. know, to be able to stay consistent with our health. Um, yeah. but we don't feel the, you know, we, it's not like I don't have zero symptoms, but it's right. a lot less than they were from the bedridden person, you know, a decade right. ago, right. but yeah. So yeah, you, you did. I mean, it, it's like anything, I guess there's a spectrum of it's all over the board. It's a yeah. spectrum of people. So yeah. Yeah. And again, all those ongoing symptoms could be limbic system issues, they could be uh, low levels of infection your immune system is controlling. They could be persisters. They could be autoimmune illness triggered by, you know, all those things I reviewed earlier. Those are all things to consider still and to try to, to deal with too. Yeah. Definitely. Um, okay. I want to go to a different gear for a second and make sure I ask about some of the challenges that you may have encountered as a physician treating Lyme, because <laughs> you, you, you mean you, you've been treating for a, a, quite a while now, but yeah. you particularly treated it during a period of time in this early 2000, mid 2000 area where physicians were being hammered for, yeah. for doing it. And I, I know that's still going on in some parts. Yeah. There is a little bit more awareness now than, than there was. But yeah. you went through a really hot period. Can yeah, you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, um, my medical board came after me in Washington State um, seven years ago now. It, about five, seven years ago, sometime. In that. <laughs> it's a blur. <laughs> 
And um, you know what? How I got brought to their attention was reasonable. The fact that they wanted to look at me, I think, was reasonable. And let me explain how they that they found out about me. So, I had a a patient of mine that um, had Lyme disease and terrible Botox illness. And she found me online um, and eventually decided to move from Colorado out to Washington state to get care for me. And her biggest symptom, her main, her biggest problem was multoxicity on top of the line, but multoxicity rendering her with severe excruciating pain. I mean, severe, severe. Prior to seeing me, she had seen a pain specialist in Colorado and had been run through about every narcotic you can imagine, all the neuro, uh, the um, neuroepileptic medicines, the anti-seizure medicines we use for pain, the anti-depression medicines we use for pain, and was still just rendering a horrid, just horrid pain. They discovered quite by accident that Ambien, the sleep medicine Ambien, gave her pain relief. And there's scientific reason for that. Uh, there's a receptor in the brain called a benzodiazepine GABA receptor. Uh, so benzodiazepines would be things like Valium, those kind of medicines. And then uh, GABA pentin would be things like, uh, um, or a GABA receptor would be influenced by things like Neurontin, which is an anti-seizure medicine, okay? Well, just so, so, and then we use those. I mean, we use the neuroepileptics as part of pain management. So the ambient binds to that receptors. And so in that sense, it is not just a sleep medicine, it's like an anti-seizure medicine and how it works. And so it made sense. And I'd seen this happen. I had another person that had terrible illness that it was the ambient that was taking their pain away. So I had that as backdrop. Anyhow, by the time she came to see me, she was on, I think around... 70 or 80 milligrams a day of Ambien for pain management, which, you know, a typical dose for sleep is 10 milligrams. And in the course of detoxing her and treating her Lyme, her pain just kept going up. And we wound up getting up to, I think, 12 a day Ambien. All right. Now, she was not impaired by it, though. When you ever use an anti-seizure medicine, your guide for how high you can go is, are they impaired by it? So for instance, gabapentin, 300 milligram pill is what we use for most things. For pain management, you can dose it up to 7,200 milligrams. And you're just looking at the person as, are they a zombie on this or not? Okay. And she was not impaired by it. So anyhow, pharmacist called me into the board because of the high levels of Ambien I was using. And so I got the investigation letter. And I wrote back to them. I defended everything. And the problem with you get investigated, they don't just look at the issue that you got. They see the whole record. So she was one of my sickest patients. I had to pull everything out of my bag of tricks to get her well, which means they saw in her record was the full range of alternative medicines, plus treating Lyme disease, plus treating mold toxicity. When I got that request, my, my first thing was, holy shit, I'm, this is not going to go well. This is not going to go well. And technically what they should have done when I responded and I wrote, that was, the Ambien was started by a pain doctor. This is why we're using it. Here's the science about why it would work. They should have walked away. But because I was managing Lyme disease too, 
And because I was using thyroid medicine, even when the thyroid tests were normal, but she still had symptoms of low thyroid, they had a cow. And that turned into a um, almost two and a half, three year escapade where I, I, we originally reached an out of court settlement where I had to write some papers. I had to go to a medical records course. And when I, they reviewed my papers where I defended again, using Ambien and I defended how I managed thyroid. They had another cow. They pulled me back in and they had a face-to-face -face with me and threw the book at me and then opened up an investigation of my whole practice claiming I was a public health threat. And so, um, <laughs> and it was at that time, that was four years ago, I moved, I stopped practicing for uh, a year, a little over a year. And the reason I did, they never pulled my license and I could have kept practicing. But what happened is in my own practice then, because I knew they were investigating, I, anytime I would do something with a patient, I would do what I thought was the best. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about what will the board think? What will the board think? And I started realizing that it was starting to not, I was at times maybe not making the best decisions on what I knew to do. And so I thought I've got to step away. Well, this goes on. I got to step away. And um, three years, and the reason I went to Austin is in Washington state, if I had lost my license, I couldn't write about Lyme disease anymore. Their, their law basically says you cannot write about healthcare if you don't have a medical license. So I looked around for where I, that would not be a problem and Texas was fine. <laughs> so I came down here uh, to do that and ride my motorcycle in Hill Country. And, uh, and about a year after being here, I got a letter from the board saying, we give up, um, you, we're, we're not gonna pursue anything. But I thought they were gonna pull my license when they claimed I was a public health threat and they did a random audit of my practice. I thought I am this. So yeah, I've had my, my problems. And I still think, although it is friendlier for physicians out there, it is not friendly. Um, all of us have medical boards. And I, I look at some of my colleagues, some of the things they're doing. I know some of my colleagues, for instance, are doing um, intravenous peptide therapies or injectable peptide therapies. You know, the, all of these drugs are, these peptides are not FDA approved. They're allowed right now by the FDA and the FDA is still trying to give formal ruling on every one of the peptides. They have not said whether they're going to continue letting compounding pharmacies make these for injections and they're on a, we're in an investigating list, but they're not technically FDA approved. And I know for my medical board, my medical board, when I was using things that were not FDA approved, but still of a drug that had been an FDA approved drug, they were having a cow on that. I think a lot of my colleagues are leaving themselves wide open right now on, on intravenous peptide therapy. I think from what I went through with my medical board, something that's not on an, an FDA approved drug that they're injecting, even a peptide, I won't touch it because <laughs> of my experience I have on my board. I think we all have to be careful still. You know? Yeah, that sounds brutal. I mean, that really sounds like a, a, a brutal uh, encounter with them. But I have to give you credit and say that it takes a significant amount of integrity to know that there's a voice in the back of your head going, I can't actually do my best work under these circumstances. And I, I know not everyone would be able to do that. So yeah. that speaks a lot to you as a physician and the, in, in the character and compassion that you have towards treating people. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I know doctors that wouldn't, <laughs> that may not step away like that. So yeah. that's great. Hey, but you can always come to Illinois. We have a doctor protection law that <laughs> we enacted here and it's been quite effective. So that's come good. Back, come back yeah. to the Midwest. That's good. That's good. Thank you for the request. <laughs> uh, let me see here. Matt, do you have anything to add? I do. I do. So I'm just curious, Dr. Ross, I know from your website that you are going to be shutting down your practice uh, in a few months and you're going to be moving on to do some other things. So, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast, I know are going to say, you got to be kidding me. We hear this brilliant doctor who's helped so many people and now he's leaving practice and now he can't help me. Right. But we know it's not true. You're still doing a ton of other things that can that can help the community. So what are your plans for the future? If you can talk to us about the you know transitioning from being a practicing Lyme litter medical, you know, uh, practitioner and what your plans are next and how you plan on continuing to help the Lyme community, even after you shut, you shut the doors of your clinic and um, what the next year has in store for you. Yeah. So um, I'm not going away. <laughs> I'm just, I'm stopping one thing I do, which is clinical practice, but my, um, I'm still going to keep supporting people with Lyme and uh, physicians treating Lyme as well too. So my goal, my plan is, is keep my treat Lyme by Marty Ross MD, my information site updated, probably more regular. I have more time to keep it updated. Um, so it's going to free up some time to keep that site active. I'll be writing more books. I'm going to keep my supplement store going so people have access to the quality supplements. Um, the new things I'm going to be starting, and this is why I'm stepping away from clinical practice, I'll have time to do this. And my goal is to set up two online communities. One is one that I, at this point, I'm calling Lyme People, which is going to be a online community for people living with Lyme. At this point, I'm envisioning opening it with two forums. One will be a forum that will be for people living with Lyme to discuss among themselves solutions to problems they're having and, and to get support. The other one will be um, an, a doctor's hours with me where people can ask me any question that they want to, to. And I'll probably be running that maybe a couple times a week, maybe even daily, five days a week. I haven't decided that yet. In the So the, what will make my site different than a lot of online Facebook groups, for instance, is it's gonna be physician supported. So in the patient forum where people are discussing, while I may not be making regular comments, if I think people are discussing something that's not healthy or really incorrect, I am going to pipe in and say, I don't know about that idea. <laughs> and here's why. I mean, I don't want to interfere the solving that people with living with the illness can do, because I think there's some great solving that can happen with physicians out of the way. But I am still going to circle in the background from a safety standpoint, basically, too. Um, so those are the initial two rooms I'm going to start there and I'm going to throw it open to the people that eventually join the, uh, the communities. What else, what other rooms do you want? Do you want a, a, a place that we, everyone can talk about their weekly win, the thing that went well, um, what other things do you want to build into your community? I'm just going to be the community host, basically the other community I'm going to try to put together is, you know, many physicians, I think would be more open to treating Lyme if they had support. And it's hard when you first start treating this thing to get 
to have good support. So I'm thinking um, once I get launched, the patient oriented or people living with Lyme oriented community is setting up one that will be oriented at practitioners so that they have a place they can meet and um, discuss how to manage Lyme disease as well too. So what I wanna do is help more. Um, I'm stepping away from clinical care, but I'm envisioning myself actually helping to grow the next group of physicians that are gonna treat this and to support people living with it as well too through these uh, two different community forums that I'm setting up. So Dr. Ross, in the short term, this patient, we'll call this patient segment of Lyme people is where Lyme patients like Jenny and myself can go and share feedback and give advice with you obviously supervising it to ensure that there's nothing being said that can be harmful or that's that's not consistent with what you know to be best practice and right and right. you know helpful in the community. But the other part is where you're still going to be doing these, it sounds like these these webinars in this community of medical consults where people can come and ask you questions directly as well. So you're still going to be directly interacting with the Lyme community to help them too. Is that true? Yeah. 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 And, and I'm still going to keep my free webinars going too. you know, my weekly webinars that I have, I, I think you both have participated in before, um, or at least Jenny, I know you participated in before, but, um, but, and so I see what I'm going to be doing in the community, something separate from that. The community, to be honest, I'm, I'm going to set that up with some type of a membership fee um, if people want to participate, just because it's going to take time and I got to pay for the platform and all that too. Um, so I am going to keep both options going. If you want to visit with me, you can pay, be part of the community and visit with me in my doctor's office hours there, or weekly, I am still going to keep offering my weekly free Lyme Q&A webinar as well too. So you're going to have your free webinars to help people in a group forum, and then you're going to have your paid version, which in my view is still probably going to be far more affordable than going to see somebody in a physical facility to see out-of-pocket limelighter doctors. I mean, yeah. I can tell you I would do that in a heartbeat to go see yeah. you virtually in a community at a cost to yeah. benefit from your vast experience in treating Lyme patients. So yeah. you're really not yeah, same. stopping treating people. You are going to be treating people through this virtual community, which is yeah. really exciting to hear. I have to be careful though, because <laughs> technically um, I cannot be treating people, right? Because I mean, I, I don't have a physician patient relationship with them. So what I'll be offering is advice to say, look, if I had a patient in your situation, this is what I would do. I suggest you talk to your physician. I'm going to have to do disclaimers like that, right? Uh, but <laughs> but this is, yeah, but this is the key yeah. part, Dr. Ross. I yeah. have to tell you, I have two really good doctors, one of which, which I just, just found recently in the last couple of months, both of whom are extremely open-minded and want to help. They spend time and they care, but they just don't understand tick-borne illness, chronic illness in general, but they want to help. They want to help me, right? Right, right? And they're doing their best and I have to bring them the research and they're willing to put in the work as doctors, but right. I'm bringing them information. I'm emailing them stuff. But if they had access to somebody like you, and it sounds like this is where the other part is, and I want to segue this into your, you know, now that your, your line people where you're going to have your paid subscription for medical consults and then your patient support group. But now beyond that, you're doing this practitioner oriented yeah. group. That, that I think that, is- that may, that may be, again, that's down the road. My first thing is to get the, the line people for people living launched. I, I may even play with that, work with that, learn about it over about a six month period of time and eventually open up a physician oriented forum. I'll, I'll, I'll call the physician oriented forum a different name. It won't be called Lyme people. It'll be a different thing. Gotcha. I mean, but now in, it sounds like you've been doing this already because through your work at ILADS and through your work through your, your current practice, you're helping other doctors, you're, you're collaborating with other doctors. So if somebody's listening to this and there is a 
very open-minded doctor, whether it be infectious disease or, uh, you know, a neurologist or autoimmune or whatever it may be, are, are you willing to speak to people who want to collaborate and, and expand the knowledge of this type of, of functional medicine in, in the short term? Yeah. So the answer is yes. I mean, the predominant way that people do it, physicians, is they just read my stuff. I mean, as, as, as you know, it, I do write with the idea in mind that it's people living with Lyme that are going to read it. So my voice is that direction. But there still is enough science and meat in my articles that if you're a physician, you get the things you need to know that what I'm talking about is valid. And so that's the starting point. When people write to me and say, how should they manage this? I say, well, take a look at this article. And then if that's not enough for them, and I say, after you've looked at it, if you have more questions, feel free to write me. I'd be glad to give you advice, basically. So, yeah. So, Dr. Rush, you've given us a bazillion ways at how you could help practitioners, patients, et cetera, even once you shut the doors of your practice. And I'm so thankful for you to continue to do that. I know Jenny and Rich are as well. I do. Yeah. I know we're getting really close to time here, but I want to ask, I want to ask one, one more question is, you know, you've been in this this community now for quite a while, you know, about 20 years, you've been focusing on Lyme disease, and you've been a Lyme specialist leading the charge for us in this community. Is there anything on the horizon that gives you hope? You know, we have the Lymex competition to get better Lyme testing. We have researchers studying novel treatments for Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. We have all these big groups like the Cohen Foundation that are pumping in millions and billions of dollars to, to fund research. Is there anything out there that you think is going to be really powerful in the coming years to help the Lyme community? Yeah, boy. Uh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I would say I'm hopeful, but I don't know what the next big thing is gonna be. Why I am hopeful is all the reasons that you just stated. There's, we're starting to see a lot of interest in trying to find solutions um, in terms of testing, in terms of treatments. Do I know what the next big thing is gonna be? No, I, I don't know what the next big thing is gonna be. I, there would be a part of me um, that would hope that eventually we do come up with a vaccine that works and doesn't harm people. But, and then I know there's a vaccine out there being studied right now. I'm, I'm still not sure if that new vaccine is not going to harm people. <laughs> so I'm, I, 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 we know the last vaccine, there was harm that happened to people from it, but, and I, and I know with COVID and everything, there's all the vaccine controversies, but if there's a way that we could prevent people from even getting this damn thing, that's the best way for the future, right? But for people living with the illness right now, I can't tell you what the next big thing is. I really don't know. Yeah, and, and I, wanna, I wanna give you my views on the vaccine because what makes me anxious about a vaccine for Lyme is there are a wide variety of strains of Borrelia. So we'll cover all the strains. And you know we don't even know probably all the strains that exist today. We're finding new ones. So like Borrelia miyamotai is relatively new in the last decade or so, right? Yeah. Yeah. And beyond that, what about the co-infections? What about anaplasma or lichia, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? These yeah. things have to be addressed as well. And beyond that, there are other things. Like we know from Dr. McDonald that, you know, these nematode parasites can be transmitted from a tick and they can go into your brain and work in a symbiotic relationship with Lyme and cause all kinds of conditions in, in, in the brain like Alzheimer's and dementia, right? So I just feel like a vaccine may not be a comprehensive solution. It may sort of be a false safety net for people to think they don't have to take proper protection steps when they can still get sick from ticks out in, in, you know, in, in the world. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Dr. Ross? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I don't think that it's a perfect solution. I'm not even sure they're going to be able to develop one, to be honest with you, because of, but in an ideal world, it would be nice if we could, you know, the thing about your um, co-infections, it's interesting is if, it, if Lyme wasn't injected by that tick at the same time, could the immune system deal with Bartonella? 
could the immune system deal with babesia? Okay, so I, I, I hear your point, but it's possible, even if it is, if there is one developed that's safe, that doesn't hurt people, all, all those caveats, okay? Um, maybe that will be enough to stop a lot of even the co-infections, not directly, but indirectly, because it deals with the Lyme part of it as well, too. So I, I don't know. I don't know the solution for sure. Well, yeah. uh, Dr. Ross, this, this comes full circle because you started this podcast by saying you were a runner, right? As a young as a young person, and you kept getting injured, and you kept wondering, why am I getting injured all the time? And that brought you into sports medicine and that curiosity, right? And the same curiosity of why are people getting chronically ill from things like Lyme disease? And what are all these cytokine triggers or symptoms? And if you can manage one, can your immune system handle the rest? If you can, if you can get rid of one by addressing, you know, the, the fungus and, or by addressing the mold and all this curiosity and all of this, this thinking is really going to help us bring relief to the chronic Lyme community. So I know we are extremely close on time. Uh, Jenny, do you have any, any, do you want to Throw in a final question before we conclude this. I know uh, you have a lot on your list of questions. No, I just want to say thank you so much for doing this. Honestly, it's been so informative. Um, I think it'll really help this patient community. I know it's been helpful for Matt and I. And um, you know, it's a, like we we took a lot of your time this morning. And <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Yes, Dr. I enjoyed. I, I thank you both for the invite. I, I've enjoyed spending time with both of you this morning. Thank you. We may track you down at a later date. So I'd come yes. back. No, I'd be glad to come back again if you all want to do that. That's yes. no problem at all. We yeah. will need a part two, Dr. Ross. And, and truly, from behalf of the entire Tick Bootcamp community, we can't thank you enough because this has been one of the most impactful. I'll tell you, um, you've given us the most amount of hope, the most amount of knowledge, the most amount of data and specific tips and tricks to help people and give people hope in the community. So we really can't thank you enough for joining our podcast. We know you're a very, very busy man. And from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for everything you're doing for the Lyme community, Dr. Ross. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Marty Ross. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Ross, visit his website at treatlime.net. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review of your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.